You're listening to the Ranch Church Podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com. Today is Palm Sunday, and so I'm going to be in Luke chapter 19. I'll start in verse 18 and go to verse 44. And, um, you know, I I think you'll agree with me. A a lot of uh, theologians and Christians would call Passion Week or Palm Sunday kicks off Passion Week the most important week in human history. And, And I agree, and I think by the time I'm done, you might agree with me too. And notice this, from the Word of God, Palm Sunday, this particular account is in all four Gospels, just not the synoptic Gospels. You know, you find a lot of the uh, same things in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic. They're the same, not perfectly the same, but basically sort of the same story from a different viewpoint. But we have it in John, too. Anytime you find an account in all four Gospels, pay attention. Pay attention. It is that important. It really is. So we call this Passion Week, and in the course of one week, and I think this is why a lot of of theologians believe this is the most important week in civilization, is this. One week we have Jesus making the triumphal entry. We have Jesus cleansing the temple of the money changers. This is all back to back. We have that wonderful example of Jesus speaking through parables to not only the disciples as a whole, but his 12 as well. We have Jesus warning his disciples and the people of the Pharisees. This is back to back to back to back. We have Jesus predicting the destruction of Herod's temple, We have Jesus prophesying about his own death and and, and resurrection. So this is one week, man. This is just boom, boom, boom. A lot of very, very important stuff going on. Fact is that at the time, very few understood what really he was saying and doing. Very few did. In fact, uh, again, it's in all four Gospels. If you take a look at the Gospel of John, it actually, the disciples kind of admitted they didn't understand really what was going on. It wasn't till after the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection, that they started to put the puzzle pieces together and they realized the importance of the events that they were caught up in. What I'd like to do I'd like to focus on what Jesus said and did on this last entry into the holy city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So it was his last entry, but can I tell you this was not his first entry? I don't know if you're like me, but a lot of times I read things in the Bible and I think, oh, well, this is the first time this happened, or I just kind of idealize it in that way. But let me tell you, Any God-fearing Jew would have once a year made the pilgrimage into the holy city of Jerusalem during the high holy days of Passover. I mean, every year. So why I'm saying this is that you can bet that Jesus' parents took him and the kids into Jerusalem before. This is not his first time there. And I point that out to say this. 
This is what makes this entry so special. This is why we call it Palm Sunday, and it's referred to as Palm Sunday. There was no other Sunday before that was Palm Sunday, and, and I'll show you how all this works. But I think more than anything, I think my prayer is, as I finish, I hope you can look back and see the human face of God in our Lord Jesus Christ through his words and his deeds. And as well as that, hopefully we can make some application to our own life. This isn't just about accumulating knowledge and saying, yeah, well, we read these verses. I think if we leave here without making application to our own life, we're really missing something. So, Lord, it's with that that we open your word. And I would very simply play, uh, pray that, Lord, that as we interact with your scripture, as we are filled with your spirit, sanctification would take place. And we would walk away, Lord God, not forgetful hearers, but effectual doers of your word. And I pray this in Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 So if you would, let's, let's go to Luke. And what I'll do is I'll read the verses, then we'll go back and pick at it a little bit. So Luke 19, verse 28, says exactly this. After Jesus had, dead, had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices, for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they kept quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Amen. So if we look at this as it very starts out, it's, it's interesting, I think, to note that Jesus is walking with his disciples into the holy city. There's a couple smaller cities in front of Jerusalem. One of them is just outside of Jerusalem called Bethphage. He tells his disciples, two of them, we don't know who, he says two of them to go untie this donkey that had never been ridden, right? So 
I don't know how Jesus knew there would be a donkey there that hadn't been written the scripture silent. But, I mean, some, some people think that, well, it was kind of a prearranged thing where his disciples had went ahead of him, secured this donkey, and did the whole thing. Or maybe Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. I don't know, but he's working it just as he needed to work it. But I think, and I don't know about you, but check this out. I think it's supernatural that when the owners of this donkey, probably donkeys weren't cheap. I don't know, a little colt donkey probably wasn't cheap. They come out and finding these, these people they probably didn't know, untying it. They're saying, hey, like, why are you doing this? And they say, the Lord has need of it. That was satisfying to them. It's like the conversation ends. That's interesting. And then I don't know much about horses. I know even less about donkeys. But, but, but I'm guessing that uh, unbroken donkeys don't take kindly to someone riding on them for the first time. I don't know. But that might be a bit of a mess, but the Lord is doing his thing. Um, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Let me say that again. Here's the truth. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. The fact that he picked a donkey is amazing. He's actually fulfilling prophecy. 500, 500 years earlier, Zechariah had prophesied that the Messiah, the King, God King Messiah, would come riding into town on a donkey. You know that well, dear brother. Uh, let me read, Zechariah 9.9 says this. This is what the prophet said. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king has come to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 500 years earlier, that was said. And notice this. I don't want to studying uh, this. I don't know. I, I just jumped out. There's no doubt who Zachariah is talking about. He says, see, your king comes, righteous and having salvation. Who has salvation? There's only one that I know that has salvation. That's God. He's saying God will come riding in on a donkey. It's not only an amazing fulfillment of prophet, uh, prophecy, but for me, kind of a kind of a, a geek when it comes to checking things out in the Bible. I've never read anywhere else in the Bible where Jesus rides anything. Maybe he did, but the Bible sure doesn't say. It might be the first time Jesus ever rode a thing. I really don't know. But what I think is amazing is, and I know this to be a fact, never before have we seen Jesus drawing attention to himself. In fact, quite the opposite. He always shunned attention. Crowds started to gather. He went the other way. He customarily withdrew. However, notice this. Here, he absolutely is not only inviting the attention, but he's unequivocally, unequivocally identifying himself as being the Messiah King in no, in no uncertain words. And see, I don't know about you, but I, I thought this made a lot of sense. The choice of him riding this donkey revealed two things about him. I think it revealed something about his life and his ministry, quite honestly. First, it identified him with the kingly line of David, the kingly line of David. You see, the donkey 
was regarded as a royal animal before David and during David's reign. But after David's reign, the Hebrew kings and warriors switched to stallions. There was a big switch. And the donkey, quite honestly, was regarded as an undignified poverty animal, the animal of a servant. After that, everything changed. So what do we see here? And secondly, we see that Jesus borrowed it, didn't he? It wasn't even his own. He borrowed this donkey, therefore, I believe, identifying himself perfectly. Jesus is telling us he is both king and servant. He is both king and servant. Now, I don't know about you, but that's one, I think maybe the greatest dichotomy in human history. We all have to work that out in our life. He is king, but he's a servant. He died for us as a servant. The most agonizing, lowly death ever. This is the person, the man, the God that created everything. Listen, I don't know how, how to make those two come together, you know, rightly, but this is what he is showing us. This is no uncertain terms. This is what he's showing us. So the stage was set. The stage is totally set. What I'm going to call Jesus's temporary triumphal entry. Temporary. You see, things are going to change very, very quickly, as we will see, very quickly. Brings us to verse 37. Let me read verse 37 to you, please. It says this. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. So know this, textually, the word disciples here, it's used in the broadest sense. It's not talking about the 12. It's talking about a huge following that was following Jesus at the time. Not, you know, I think a disciple, someone, you know, studying, uh, devoting their life to one thing. This was different. This was more or less a following. You see, Jesus had been doing many, many miracles in that area for the last several months. Uh, he'd been feeding people, remember? Fit bread and loaves. He'd been healing people, not to mention the raising of Lazarus had not taken place, but too far ahead of this. He was sort of this star, if you will. He was gathering a lot of attention. Um, and, and I'll say this, I believe Jesus had a lot of what I call temporary disciples, or let me say temporary followers. I think that some of the folks actually believed in him and they were saying, yes, this is God Messiah. I think that some did, but I think the vast majority just wanted to see the show. It was like the traveling circus. They wanted to be part of the movie, man. There's excitement, there's adulation. I just want to be part of this. I mean, hey, we get some free fish and loaves. I saw the dude raise a guy from the dead. Let's check this out. I mean, it's human nature, right? And I think the majority, that's what was going on. Um, however, here's what the scripture says. Not only were the crowds praising God for the miracles they'd seen, but they were shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118. So they were ascribing deity to Jesus for sure. They shouted, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. When I look at the book of John, it says this, and I put this together to get the full picture. In the book of John, it says the crowd cried out, Hosanna. Remember we, we sang that today? Hosanna means save or save us. 
Hosanna. And they also yelled, blessed, blessed is the king of Israel. Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. In no uncertain terms, they were putting this moniker on Jesus. They were saying, you're the Messiah. Our text tells us that they threw their cloaks in front of Jesus on the road where this donkey's going. This is huge in two ways. Listen, this is huge. I think you get this already. But the people at that time might have only had one cloak. They weren't going back to their walk-in closet sorting through all their clothes. Yeah, that's no big deal. I got this. It wasn't that. Um, I don't know about you, but if I spill ketchup on a good shirt, I'm bummed. I am bummed. It, there's no way I'm taking my best cloak and throwing it before a donkey. But this is, this is what they were doing. It was this, I, this gesture of reference, if I can put it like that, gesture of reverence. It was their way of saying, Jesus, we're willing to give you everything we have. We're willing to give you everything we have. Again, in the book of John, it varies a little bit. It says that they threw palm branches on the road in front of the donkey and Jesus, palm branches. Why did they do that? Well, we call it Palm Sunday for one, excuse me, for one, but that's why. But why palm branches? Why would they do that? See, the palm branch represented their desire to be delivered from Roman oppression. You see, many years before, the palm branch was imprinted on their coin during the second Maccabean revolt. Some of you know about that, where the Jews actually did revolt and gain their freedom from their oppressors. It was very, very uh, important. This palm branch represented freedom. And so when they're throwing that in front of Jesus, they're saying, you're the one. You're gonna bring us freedom. You're gonna do it. So the fact, if you listen, what they're saying and what they're doing, they're shouting out, Hosanna, or save us, and throwing palm branches. People are really saying that they are viewing Jesus as their deliverer. You are the king, you are the deliverer. And he certainly was, he certainly was, but not in the way they thought. Let me emphasize that. He certainly was their deliverer, but not in the way they thought. Let me look at a quick parallel verse. Again, it's in all four Gospels. In Matthew, the people pose, I think, the most wonderful question ever. Listen to this. Matthew 21.10 says, When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Unknowingly, listen, unknowingly, they asked the most important question any human being can ask or answer. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? For every one of us, the answer to that question will determine your spiritual destiny. It is a very important question, none better. So we have this scene. It is quite a scene. People chanting and yelling, the crowd, Jesus coming in. It almost seems a little chaotic. And, you know, I can picture Jesus looking around, wow, what's going on? Not at all. Jesus is in 100% control, 100% control. He is controlling the destiny, the flow of what's going on here. You see, this donkey, again, as he rode in, he was prophesying his position as king and his character as a servant. The people are praising him from the book of Psalms saying, 
Blessed is, the, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're calling him Messiah. This was his moment. This was Jesus drawing attention to himself, perfectly orchestrated. Can I say that this day was founded before the creation of the world? This day was already founded, Jesus, claiming who he is, the Messiah. And now what happens? We get to see inside the minds of the Pharisees, don't we? They never let a moment go. The Pharisees, they are the ultimate legalists. They are the enemy of Jesus. So check this out. In verse 39, it says this. Verse 39 says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Oh my gosh. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You see, they did not like, for one second, the adulation that Jesus was getting. If they weren't getting the praise and adulation, it, it ain't right. So they didn't like it a bit. And they asked Jesus, silence these people, silence them. Jesus shouted for all to hear. I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You ever think about that? Think about that for one second. Do you know the power in that statement? I think it's inconceivable, the power in that statement. I'll say this, and I don't think it was hyperbole. I don't think Jesus was using hyperbole. You see, picture it. Here we have the creator of the universe, the creator of the universe, coming into the holy city of Jerusalem, drawing attention to himself, the fact that he is the Messiah and King. So check this out. If the humans didn't cry out, something in creation would have. This is crescendo. This is like, boom. This is Jesus claiming who is. That's supernatural. I believe that sent ripples through the universe. That's me. But I, I get chills thinking about that. Most of the crowd here, this enthusiasm, it was quite short-lived. And that's why I called it temporary triumph. Very, very short-lived. See, the people were hoping, hoping for this conquering national hero. This conquering national hero. Someone would come in on a war stallion, overthrow the Romans, give them the freedom they're looking for, let the Jews who are being oppressed, let them do what they've wanted to do. They thought he's going to come in and do all this. But here in their minds and their eyes, their senses, they're seeing this poorly dressed carpenter on a peasant animal riding in. It did not fit their expectation. It blew their expectation right out of the water. And this is why in the next verse, we're going to see Jesus with a tear in his eye crying. It's not what I expect. I don't think it's what you expected either, right? It seems like he would be riding and reveling in the moment. No, he has a tear in his eye. But before I go on, I think we should take a moment and uh, I think there's some application for us here personally, maybe corporately. I, I don't know. Um, I know a lot of us, you know, we, we've seen folks that appear to be interested in Christianity or appear to be interested in the Lord Jesus. Maybe they've seen something wonderful or they've experienced 
something supernatural. Then the Lord doesn't quite do something the way they thought it should be done. Or they suffer a hardship that they don't think they deserve. How quickly, and me too, how quickly can we reclaim that seat on the throne to the universe when we think God has done something wrong? That seat is reserved for one, God. But how quickly we will sit there when we think he's done something wrong. You know, a lot of us will think, well, you know, Jesus sounds pretty good. I'll let him be my savior and my deliverer. But I think he should make me not rich, but not poor, you know, upper middle class. I think he should do that. And I I think I should be happy most of the time. That fits in my mind for a follower of Jesus. No. See, these preconceived notions we have, uh, they're, they're not all that healthy. And keep in mind, guys, keep in mind that five days after these praises were coming off the lips of these people, you know what was coming out of their mouth? Crucify him. Get rid of him. Give me Barabbas. Crucify him. Human character hadn't changed a heck of a lot in 2,000 years. I'm sorry to say it just hasn't. You know, and I think it's a good reminder for us, too, that if you have a relationship with Jesus that is built on signs and wonders, watch out. That will not last the hard times. It must be built on something else. All right, let's start heading for home. Let me read verse 41 through 44. Let's see what this says. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you and the enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God coming to you. The Lord is weeping, and it's more than just a little tear. The word in the Greek is weeping. Those around him saw him weep. I think there's two reasons the Lord weeps over the city. Listen, I think there's two reasons he does this. First, because of the love that fills him. Second, because of the judgment that awaits the people. First, for the love that fills him. Second, for the judgment that awaits the people. You see, these people, there's no doubt in my mind, they longed for peace. I get that, and that's right. But they, again, they thought it would come in a political form, a military form. They thought the Messiah would somehow create an environment for them to triumph over their oppressors. Nothing was, nothing was fitting for them. And And, you know, in all honesty, it's understandable that they would think that. I see how there could be a scenario for someone to come in and do what they thought needed to be done. But can I say this? Now listen to this. It was their plan. It wasn't God's plan. That was their plan, not God's plan. That's applicable right now. For some of us today, I really think we are looking for peace in a similar way. Here's what the verse says. It says this. If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, 
but now it is hidden from your eyes. It's hidden from your eyes. And I think the apostle Paul points this out perfectly. Let me read a passage from Ephesians 4. Here's what Paul says. This is your circumstance. Outside of Jesus, you were darkened in your understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in you due to the hardness of your heart. Paul's hitting it from the other direction. Here's a fact, guys. Listen to this. You, you, you can take this to the bank. Sin is a condition before it's an action. Before you ever do anything sinful, sin is a condition. Sin is a condition before it's an action. The Bible uses the analogy of sinners being blind, and I think it's perfect. It's sin, it's sin that blinds us to the fact that we are alienated from God at birth. Sin blinds us to the fact that we are alienated from God. Sin blinds us to the fact that we need peace with God. Sin blinds us to the provision that has been made in the Lord Jesus Christ for that peace. It is sin that blinds us. And know this, and this is important. It's first knowing peace with God horizontally that we discover the peace of God in our life, excuse me, vertically, we must know that peace with God vertically, vertically before we experience the peace of God in our life with our friends and our family. It is always, always vertical before horizontal. And I believe that's what the Lord was getting at here. You see, and this peace that God has granted us through the person of Jesus Christ, that is the one thing that sin seems to always blind us to. That is the key point. It will blind us to that. However, when I look at these tears, think of this, the Lord shedding tears. We can, we can read that quick. We can overlook it. I don't think it should be overlooked for this reason. The tears of Christ measure the value of your soul. The tears of Christ measure the value of your soul. And why would this great King Messiah cry? Why would he do this? He knows something. You know what? You know what Jesus knows? Jesus knows that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. He wills that none perish. Jesus knows this, brother. He knows this. Now, certainly from time and space and us as educated Christians, we know history. In hindsight, we know good and well that Jerusalem in 70 AD, a few short years after this, would be totally decimated. Jesus is prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem, and it was complete. Men, women, children, all gone. But what the Jews valued the most, the temple destroyed forever gone. Jesus is talking about this. And realize this, this is important. Realize that this warning of judgment comes from the lips of someone with tears in their eyes. He, he's getting no joy out of this. This warning of judgment is coming from someone with tears in their eyes. See, this is the same Jesus, and you'll remember this, on another occasion, overlooked Jerusalem and said this, how often would I have gathered you like a hen with your young, but you would not come, but you would not come. You see, 
we must understand that the severity of God's judgment must be understood in light and the reality of God's love. The severity of his judgment can only be understood in the light of his love for us. Here's what I'd like to do right now. If the prayer team would come forward, because I think this Palm Sunday is just a special occasion for this. If you guys would come forward, I, I want to make a few closing points. And I'm really praying that the Holy Spirit is resting on your heart right now, because I think this is extremely, extremely applicable on this Palm Sunday. Can I say this? On this Palm Sunday, maybe Christ is trying to make a triumphal entry into your heart. He very well could be doing that. I, I hope he is. If he is, would you let him rule and reign in your life? If he's resting on you, let him come in and rule and reign in the name of the Lord, in the Holy Spirit's power. Well, maybe there's some others. There's some others that might be asking the question that we do in Matthew 21. Remember they asked, who is this Jesus? Who is he? Maybe some of you need that question answered. Who is this Jesus? Can I ask you to not leave today? Do not leave the ranch church grounds without settling that question, who is Jesus? But I'm gonna save you a little bit of time and I'm gonna tell you there's only two answers to that, only two possible answers. He's a lunatic or he's God. You choose, you choose, you choose. And lastly, lastly, and I'll end with this. For those of us that have given our life to Jesus, for those of us that were forgiven by the blood that he shed on the cross five days after this took place, let's recall the way the king came into Jerusalem riding on a lowly donkey and apply the words of Philippians 2 verse five through seven, that says, your attitude, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. For those of us that know him, let's go and serve him. Thanks for listening to the Ranch Church Podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com.